We're continuing in our short sidebar series on Reformed preaching, the gifts that Jesus has given to His church in our proclamation through the Reformers. And this morning we're going to read a little bit longer section of Scripture than we normally do. I hope that as we go through it, it starts to feel right. I hope that it's not wearying, but as we hear what Jesus has to say to us in this passage, you'll agree that reading this passage in its entirety isn't just appropriate, it's necessary. Little Christians, here's my question for you this morning. When are you supposed to put your Bibles down? Let me say it a little differently. When are you supposed to understand enough that you're finished reading God's Word and you can put it away? Some of this is a little surprising and some of it, much of it, will sound very familiar to us. But all of this is the good news of Jesus as He redeems His people in His mighty deeds. Deuteronomy chapter 10 Verses 12 through eleven twenty-five. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good? Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him, and by His name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God, who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt seventy persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep His charge, His statutes, His rules, and His commandments always. Consider today, since I am not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, His greatness, His mighty hand and His outstretched arm, His signs and His deeds that He did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all His land, and what He did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots. How he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, and what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel." For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that He did. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it, like a garden of vegetables, But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. 
The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And you will indeed, if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest you be deceived and turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all His ways, and holding fast to Him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, You will dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves. Every place on which the sole of your foot tread shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates, to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread, as he promised." Lord Jesus, give us understanding as we consider your word, and more importantly, more important than our understanding these words, remake us with them. Reshape and retrain our hearts with all of the joy and the comfort and the hope that you have made for us to find in them. You have told us that these words testify of you, and so we can't be satisfied by any other words. We can be satisfied by no other saviors. These words are your words of life, and they paint the picture for us of what it means to belong to you and to be redeemed by your grace. I ask that you would do these things for us, for our comfort and joy, and for your glory alone. Amen. Would you be seated? When I was younger, my family took several educational vacations. And you know the ones I'm talking about because you've taken them too, or now you're making your children take them. You drive for what seems like months, and then you finally get to NASA, and you only have a few things on your agenda. You're going to try on the spacesuit. You're going to find out if they do indeed have one of those anti-gravity rooms you've seen in the cartoons. You're going to buy and eat as much dehydrated ice cream as you can, and you're going to pilot that simulator. You pull up in the parking lot and you gather your brochure and your money and your courage and you climb out and you run inside and your pulse is still racing. You're five steps inside the door and your parents say, come on, let's watch this 45-minute narrated 1970s slideshow history of the space program. And your head just about explodes. No, you had not planned on any of this. You had the whole day mapped out. And you intentionally left out Walter Cronkite's brother lulling you to sleep while you sit on that weird carpeted bench. Because after all of this time in the car, 
You have more important things to do than to listen to stories. That may be how some of you felt while I was reading. While I was reading and then I kept reading. And then I read some more and some of you had to turn the pages more than once. And that's surely how the Israelites felt listening to Moses. While they were waiting to go into the promised land. This wasn't just a road trip. This had been 400 years of slavery. This had been 40 years in the wilderness wandering. And now on the edge of it, on the very edge, Moses says, hold up. Let me tell you a story. It's one we've all heard before, but it's worth telling again. I didn't even read a sizable chunk of his address, and it felt long. I started a long way into it, and I stopped very short of the end. But you knew that it was a long story. In this story, God is doing more than just stretching his people's attention span. It's with this story that he's stretching and shaping them. He has made them his people by his grace, by his mighty acts and his outstretched arm. But he's going to teach them how to be his people, how to live under his grace by telling them their own story. That's one they know, but they need to be trained by it. Because this is, way, this is the way our identities work. You get an identity all at once. Most of you have been Americans from birth. Some of you are fortunate enough to have been Texans from birth. And those identities were fully yours on arrival. But in order for you to own them and to grow up into them, you had to hear and rehearse the stories that come with them. That's why our children take American history, and the lucky ones take Texas history. Our maturity as citizens requires that we are shaped by our stories. You are all raising children in Dallas. But you're going to have to tell them about the season without Cliff Lee when we still made it to the ALCS. And you're going to have to tell them about six home runs from Nelson Cruz. But when you do that, they will learn to love the Rangers. You want their identity shaped by the right kind of story. And that's why Yahweh is giving his people the Pentateuch as their constitution. It's not just some legal document. It's the narrative of his constituting them. So he tells them the story from beginning to end, from the garden into slavery, through the exodus and in the wanderings. The times that his kindness was pleasant and the times that he had to discipline them. He tells them all of it. He hides none of it. He tells it to them all the way into the land. And when they get there, they're supposed to tell it to each other again. His redemptive activity with and for them is the story of their identity. Who they are and how they came to be what they are. Their identity as his people is formed and molded around this story. They're supposed to maintain it. They're supposed to tell it to each other and retell it and hand it down so that their children learn it, so that their children are shaped by it, and then they can shape their children with it. It's not just law. In fact, far more important than law is this narrative. You've heard the consistent emphasis on obedience all the way through the passage. But did you hear the substance of it? 
He said it over and over. We heard the refrain, do these things, keep my commandments, walk in my ways, obey my voice. But after last week, could you hear Luther's emphasis underneath it? Even the Lord's commands are gifts. Keep the commandments which I'm commanding you for your good, he said. And even more than that, the substance of the commandments themselves is love. These laws aren't just moral principles. This isn't a class in abstract ethics. These are the boundaries and the shape of what it looks like for us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength. He's giving these things to us to teach us how to love Him, but He's giving them to us out of His love for us, He said. In the beginning, did you catch it? The heavens and the earth and everything in them belongs to the Lord, but He has set His heart on this people. He has fixed His heart, attached it to the patriarchs, their fathers, and their offspring after them. He's fixed His love on them so that they will belong to Him and He will be their Lord. Every part of His gift as He moves through it, every bit of His explanation is wrapped The gift wrapping is story. It's narrative. He doesn't just tell them to be kind. He doesn't even just tell them to be kind because he's kind. He tells the story of them. He tells them about the time when they were slaves, when they were vagrants in Egypt. It's because they received the Lord's kindness back then in that state. Because of that, they're chosen to extend his mercy now to any other vagrants, any other sojourners that they encounter. He doesn't just declare some vague and open-ended reward for submission either. He paints the picture for them, narrating what their lives will be like with wine and oil and grain and rest in a land filled with His worship and His presence. And He doesn't leave the consequences open-ended the way we like to. He doesn't turn to them like we do to our children and say, listen up and keep out of trouble Or else, I don't know what, but it's going to be bad. He chronicles what his anger would look like for them. He tells them a story they hope never to live. He tells them this story because it's his. It's his story, and it's their story. And if you want to marry those two ideas together, here's how the Lord does it. This narrative is the story of how the Lord took their story and turned it inside out. They're no longer slaves owned and whipped. They're no longer beaten into production for Pharaoh. Now they belong to God. And they don't sweat so that their Egyptian masters can have food. God's their master. But he serves them by giving them a land with fountains filled and flowing with milk and honey. They don't spend weeks and months out of their year digging those deep, muddy irrigation ditches. The Lord brings water to them with rain from heaven. It probably goes without saying for many of us, but I'm going to say it anyway. I didn't read this this morning because it's a nice Jewish story. This is our story. 
The Lord set his heart in love on the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he set his heart on all of their offspring by his grace. And Jesus was good to remind us multiple times throughout the Gospels, maybe most clearly through Paul's letter to the Galatians, that the real descendants aren't those added by birth. They're the ones that are added by rebirth. The real descendants get written into the story by faith. And so the odd tragedy of it is, this is our story, but we keep thinking we're going to graduate from it. We keep looking for the exit, trying to climb our way out. Now, sometimes Christians in other traditions accuse Reformed worshipers of loving theology more than Scripture. And while there's often a lot of misunderstanding wrapped up in that, there's also a lot of truth to it. Too often I hear us talk about Scripture only, only as the basis for our doctrine. Don't get me wrong, it should be the basis. But sometimes I only hear us talk about it that way. It's a foundation. We build things on top of it. We build our doctrine on it, and we live in, and we make our memories, and we celebrate our birthdays in a house of our making Doctrine was never supposed to be the house. Scripture is the foundation in the sense that we build on it, but it's also the house in the sense that that is where we live, that is where we rest, that is where we seek our shelter. So I'm going to have to bend the metaphor a little bit, so bear with me. In this sense, doctrine is the lighting, it helps us see clearly, it keeps you from stubbing your toe and tripping and falling. It lets you appreciate all the beauty in the house. But we live in the house of Scripture. When we forget that, when we only see Scripture as the foundation, then we start to treat doctrine like it's the ultimate goal. As if God always intended Scripture to be training wheels. It's a sort of jumping off point to get us past itself, to let us graduate and move on to something meatier, more substantial and better. As if there's supposed to be some linear progress where we begin with Scripture as an introduction, but as soon as we understand it, we move on to graduate courses in doctrine. All of this feels very Reformed of us, but in reality, it's probably one of the least biblical and least Reformed things that we ever do. Of all the places for us to see this, ironically, we probably get it loudest and clearest from Calvin himself in the numerous prefaces that he wrote for his institutes of all places. In his institutes of the Christian religion, John Calvin gave us a tremendous and rich, and if you've seen it or read it, a very large system of doctrine. It's the way that he saw the scriptures and their teachings fitting together. He published them first in 1536, but he continued refining and editing them. He even translated them. Into French, he republished them often. He wanted to make them accessible to his own countrymen. And every time he republished them, he would write a new preface. He would address a new letter to new readers, telling them why he had written them, how they ought to use them so they wouldn't get confused. 
1539, in the second edition he published, he called, he called them an essential prerequisite for serious Bible study and preaching. He said that his purpose in writing them was to prepare and train students of theology for the study of the sacred volume so that they might have both an easy introduction to it and be able to proceed in it with an unfaltering step. Later in his 1545 French edition, he wrote, in the, he wrote that in the Scriptures, because the Lord has unfolded the infinite treasures of His wisdom, every person not intimately acquainted with them stands in need of some guidance. He may not wander up and down, but pursue a certain path, and in so doing attain the end to which the Holy Spirit has invited him. Calvin goes on to promise that his institutes will be a kind of key, opening up to all the children of God a right and ready access to understanding the sacred volume. And he says this, I exhort all who reverence the word of the Lord to read Scripture and diligently imprint it on their memory and treat this like a summary of Christian doctrine. His institutes aren't supposed to be the destination. They're a map so that you don't get lost. You're not supposed to fall in love with them. You're not supposed to find your comfort chiefly in them. You're not supposed to rest in them. You're not supposed to drip them over your ears. That's what Scripture is for. Calvin's not advocating that we read and memorize Scripture without a solid understanding of it any more than I would recommend that you spend all day in your house with the lights off and the curtains drawn. But for Calvin and for us, doctrine isn't the end of Scripture. It's supposed to be a halfway point. Good doctrine knows its place and it serves Jesus. When you meet it, it turns around and it sends you right back to find more of Him in Scripture. And that's exactly what the Lord is doing for us in this passage. That's exactly what the Lord is telling His people in this passage before they cross over in the land. You're not supposed to hold on to these words just long enough to squeeze a little bit of meaning out of them. A few drops, and then you can, pass, you can put them down and move on. He says we're supposed to lay them up in our hearts. When He says that we lay them up in our hearts, it's not primarily about storage. You're not shelving them. You're not putting them in the back of the pantry. You don't clear out a corner and squeeze them behind some old pretzels. Biblically, this phrase, laying up, is what you do with your most prized possessions. Proverbs uses it when it says that the wise lay up knowledge. Jesus tells us not to lay up our treasures in earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. The Lord gives us these words and these stories to treasure because they train our hearts. Our hearts are His. Our hearts need training. Just saying that God saves doesn't train your heart. It's good news, but it doesn't reshape you. It doesn't remold you as His worshiper. It doesn't scrape your affections off of your idol and then reattach them to Him where they belong. Our hearts need, we need more than just a statement, more than a sentence that says God saves. We need the story of our salvation where He crushes enemies like flies 
and where He makes broken people unbelievably whole again, and we can see it and feel it, and we can hear it and imagine it. The Lord isn't networking with you and handing you a business card that if you flip it over, it says, Yahweh, Creator of the cosmos, licensed and bonded for salvation. He reminds us in vivid detail that all He did with His mighty arm His mighty hand and His outstretched arm against Pharaoh and His army and His chariots and His horses, swallowing them up in the once held back flood of the Red Sea. We need that vivid story. We need that triumph. That defeat of enemies. That deliverance of people. We need to rehearse that Jesus drowned our sin in the red flood that flowed from His own veins with His outstretched arms on the cross. We need that story more than we need quick, short statements. When our marriages falter or when we watch parents contemplate divorce, We need more than just a statement that God is good somehow. We need the story of Christ, the bridegroom of His church, who gave Hosea to be a living sermon, a living, breathing story of unbreakable love to an unfaithful bride. When we stand in a cemetery, like many of us have this year, to bury a husband or a child or a brother, We don't need someone to tell us that God knows what He's doing. That's true, but what we really need to hear is the story of that time that Jesus kicked death in the teeth when He walked out of His own tomb. And when your sin comes calling, it always does it with a story. It never shows up with a spreadsheet of specs telling you about quantifiable amounts of happiness that it offers always comes in with a story, hissing out some tale about how you'll be like God and you get to choose what it would feel like to have all of the power and all of the pleasure, what it would look like, how your life would be if you had all the control you could want. It tells you its own stories because even if they aren't true, they grab your imagination. And that's when you need something stronger than the phrase, I can't, or I shouldn't. That's never held up and your sin knows it. You need to tell your story with these words, the bigger, truer, better story of your God who defeats armies and cleanses guilt and brings you into His kingdom, who loves you and protects you and guards you and sustains you and feeds you and gives you rest and satisfies you like your sin never could. We need those stories. They need to be vivid. They need to be told often. You need them in your ears and in your mouths. Skeptics, this story may seem odd. All stories do until they become your own. Stories about armies and pharaohs, crossing rivers and keeping laws. Stories about a Jewish carpenter and a cross and a tomb. 
All these stories seem very odd to us unless they're our own. But even while they're odd, there's something in it for you. This is a story that invites you into itself. It invites you, as we've heard over and over this morning, through grace. By the grace of the story, it invites you in through faith in the one who's written the story. The same Lord who does all these things is constantly writing new people into his narrative through his cross and his resurrection. And they walk into the scenes by faith. It's a faith that's not afraid of your questions and it doesn't scold you for having them. But it's a story that doesn't apologize for being better than your questions. Back in the late 1930s, there were two men in New York and they were convinced that art had started to progress faster than society could keep up. Society at large, they said, couldn't access it quick enough. They couldn't gain exposure, and they couldn't process it, digest it, think about it, come to appreciate it and love it the way they should. Europe was producing new schools and new artists and new forms, new philosophies and new ways of thinking about aesthetics. And Americans didn't even seem aware of it. They could scarcely get a peek at it. So they committed to bring art to American culture. This meant acquiring important pieces and holding exhibitions, and that takes money, and that takes clout, and it requires time. So one of them started hosting the first exhibits in his apartment until they could find some space to rent. Over about a four-year period in rented space, the men formed a foundation, and they picked up steam. First they acquired a little, then they started acquiring quicker. They started to buy works by Mondrian, and Chagall, and Picasso. And at that point, they realized they weren't just going to need more square footage. You don't cram things on existing walls when it's this valuable. You don't clear a little space over the mantle for a piece of art that's pivotal. So they commissioned an architectural artist to create something completely new. It took numerous design attempts, and it took close to 15 years to complete. But when it was done, the Guggenheim Museum in New York became a hundred-foot-tall revolution in cast concrete to house revolutionary art. But they didn't build a vault. You don't stack the works inside and shut off the lights and lock the door. That's where you go to stroll. You walk up and down the quarter-mile-long ramp that spirals inside those exterior walls. And you pull off into various gallery niches so you can lose yourself in the beauty of all of it. And that's what the Lord means by laying up these words. That's what you're supposed to do with His words. The words of His story at work in us, you don't put it wherever you can find space. This isn't about archiving. You build space for it. These words that belong in the bottom drawer of a linen closet in your heart. You build your heart and you build your life around them to put them on display so that you can admire them, so you can lose yourself in them. And the beauty of these words, of the story that He has written and that He has written you into, 
The beauty of these words is that when you lose yourself there, it's Jesus who finds you. He finds you with His grace. He finds you by giving you more of the story and training your heart, not with just facts about Himself, but a living, breathing picture of what your life will be like with Him, what He has made you and how He is changing you and what He holds in store for those whom He loves. The beauty of these words is that when you lose yourself in them, it's Jesus and His grace that find you. Amen. Oh Lord Jesus, You have done more than just tell us stories. You've done more than give us a list of facts about Yourself. You cannot be reduced to a note card. A quick biographical snippet. In Your incarnation, in Your righteous life, in Your excruciating death, in your boisterous resurrection, you have written the truest and best narrative of redemption that we can imagine by your grace. It's by your grace that you've written us into it. By your grace that you have called us to belong. To be cared for by you, really and personally. So we ask that you would fill our ears and our hearts and our mouths with your story. Not just something to be imagined, but something to live. We ask that you give us more of your grace in these ways because we need it. We ask that you would train our hearts to love and trust you and to find our comfort and our rest in the words that you have given us. We ask that you be kind to us in this table. Feed us again. Remind us of your goodness. You've prepared a kingdom for us with a banquet where you serve us bread and wine. Now we have a glimpse of it. In that glimpse, we proclaim your death until you come back to claim us for yourself and to take us with you. We ask that you preach the gospel to us, your story of redemption in broken bread and in gulps of wine. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.